Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. Physics World turns 30 this month, with the first edition of the magazine being published in October 1988. Here on the Physics World Stories podcast, we're celebrating by producing a mini-series which will explore the areas of physics making the headlines 30 years ago and might well be continuing to make the headlines 30 years in the future. We begin this month with particle physics. I travelled to the Gravity Fields Festival in Grantham, the birthplace of Sir Isaac Newton, and there I met with Professor Val Gibson. Professor Gibson is a patron of the Gravity Fields Festival, which is a festival that takes over the village of Grantham with science shows and science talks. But Val Gibson is also a professor of high-energy physics and the head of the high-energy physics group at the Cavendish at Cambridge University. I began by asking her where she felt particle physics was today. So particle physics is in a really good place at the moment. Uh, we're in a discovery era. Uh, the last thing we discovered was the Higgs boson in 2012 at CERN. And it's like being in the 1970s now, really, because we know that there's something new out there, but we don't know what it is. And in the 1970s, something came out completely out of the blue, which was a new quark, which was the charm quark, uh, which was discovered in the States uh, by two experiments at the same time. And now we're in a place where we need to discover something new uh, beyond what we currently understand. And hopefully that will be something that may explain the dark matter in the universe. Mm. And when you say we don't know what it is... Well, well we know about 4% of the universe, right? And it's the other 96% that we don't know what it is. And 25% of that is dark matter and the rest is dark energy. So we can actually go and look for what the dark matter um, may be in our particle physics colliders. And is that where CERN is going now and the other particle colliders? Is that, is that their main focus? Um, well, CERN's main focus at the moment is the Large Hadron Collider and exploiting that as fully as possible. Uh, so really understanding the Higgs boson, which is the, the newest kid on the block, um, and all its properties, uh, understanding all its interactions with the other particles of the standard model, um, and also following up a few anomalies that are out there as well um, that are indications of physics beyond the standard model. So we really want to exploit the Large Hadron Collider as much as possible, um, but there's also a lot of other things we can do as well. And these anomalies which suggest something outside of the standard model, are you confident that they're going to show us something? Uh, You can never be confident. Um, So we have the statistics which are, I would say, indications, little peaks of, of potential new physics, What we do need to do at the moment is um, look at all of the data that we've got um, from the the Large Hadron Collider, especially with the LHCb experiment, which is studying the the quarks and the flavour physics from the quarks. And if they come to statistical significance of five sigma, we always talk in terms of sigma, and five sigma statistical significance, then that would be an absolute groundbreaking discovery. Of course, when you analyse all the data, it may also go away. So I would not be confident until I've actually seen seen the results. Okay, I'll let you get off with that. (laughs) 30 years ago, do you think if someone had said to you, would have found the Higgs boson, 
we'll be starting to look into things outside the the standard model and we're looking to find the answer to dark energy and dark matter do you think 30 years ago you'd have thought okay we will be there in 30 years no i think i'm pretty confident we'd discover the higgs boson because everybody believed that it would be there it was sort of theoretically sound that the higgs boson would be there so i'm pretty confident about that didn't know what its mass was going to be and that i think was the biggest surprise that it had the mass that it did which is 125 times the proton mass um, but that's put us in a very difficult position. So, and as far as why it's got such, why it's got the mass that it, it's got, um, and that brings in lots of problems with high. It's called the hierarchy. It's unnatural mass, and we really need to try and understand that, which is related to potentially dark matter and um, other other new particles. Uh, on the on the books was a, a a theory called supersymmetry, which everybody was um, sort of talking about that in those times, and supersymmetry sort of had the answer to everything: the the dark matter and also bringing in gravity into our our standard model of particle physics, and um, of course that now is sort of being ruled out quite rapidly with all the data that we've got. Um, so we are living in a world where theorists and experimentalists are are interested to find out what the next step is. And it, so, in thirty years' time, you're um, reading physics world. What do you want to see on the front cover? In thirty years' time, when I'm retired and sitting in the Caribbean sipping a cocktail, <laughs> I would like to see the discovery of a new particle uh, which can explain dark matter. Um, and I think no, that would be enough. I think for me, yeah, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Just the idea that that the huge, the really, really big is so intimately connected to the absolutely tiny is just fascinating. Yeah, and we 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 have to search everywhere. So not only do we have to look about the things we know, um, like the Higgs boson and all the particles uh, connected with the Higgs boson in the standard model, but we also got to look at things like. Um, neutrino sector you know the neutrinos are something which are relatively unexplored at the moment we know there's they have mass but we don't know sort of the hierarchy in their mass uh, we don't know whether they may explain the matter antimatter um, asymmetry in the universe so we really need to study that uh, we also need to study the quarks more and really try and understand whether they can explain matter-antimatter asymmetries. And then there's all the other things that we can do as well, um, not only on large-scale colliders, but also smaller-scale experiments. I, I think the community is moving to a more diverse um, experimental techniques, um, both big scale and small scale, to try and answer some of these questions. We'll hear more from Professor Val Gibson later in the podcast. But in the October 2018 edition of the Physics World magazine, Christine Sutton explores particle physics in a special feature in which she highlights the questions which will be preoccupying particle physicists for the years to come. Christine is a particle physicist, author and the former editor of CERN Courier. There's the questions of dark energy and dark matter, the pondering if string theory can ever be verifiable, and why there's so much matter compared to antimatter. But one question Christine highlights might just have stepped a little closer to being answered. Is there supersymmetry 
between the particles of matter and the particles that mediate their interactions. Recent results from Antarctica might just hold the key. ANITA is the NASA-funded detector, the Antarctic Impulse Transient Antenna, suspended from a helium balloon flying at a height of about 37,000 metres above the Antarctic ice, and it studies high-energy cosmic neutrinos by detecting the radio pulses emitted by their interactions with the Antarctic ice sheet. In the last 13 years, scientists have picked up the radio signals of two strange particles which appear to have tunnelled through the whole of planet Earth and up into the Antarctic atmosphere. A paper released on the Archive Preprint server in September 2018 suggested that these anomalous particles are highly likely to point to physics beyond the standard model. Derek Fox of Penn State University is the lead author on that paper. The way I look at this paper is um, we have come in and put a couple of pieces together, uh, sort of puzzle pieces, if you will, that were out in the literature um, that maybe were stimulating a little bit of conversation, you know, in this corner or that corner of astrophysics and particle physics and particle astrophysics. And uh, we, I mean, in the course of exploring this very interesting mystery of the Anita anomalous event, we realized that uh, the picture that you got by putting the pieces together was really in a way even more profound than you would suspect at first, just you know, exploring the nature of these, um, these two uh, uh, published and identified events. And, and so that's the way I look at it. I mean, I, we did some work to put some hard numbers on the um, prospects for generating these anomalous events just using known physics, standard model physics. And we really, I think, put that one to bed. So nobody is talking about standard model explanations for these events anymore, which is, you know, so that's a small victory. <laughs> uh, it's still possible that there's somehow a, a, a strange and unex, uh, unexpected phenomenon. Uh, really, um, they're only seen, in, you know, in, as, as these radio events. And so I think what people are waiting for right now, uh, in which we state in the, in the paper, is certainly necessary uh, to confirm it would be uh, independent confirmation from another facility or facilities that this is actually a physical phenomenon that happens on our Earth, our planet Earth. These enormously energetic particles come shooting out of the, <laughs> of the surface of the Earth, like just every now and then, like maybe one every 10 years per square kilometer or something, or, or one per year per square kilometer. This sort of thing is happening. Um, you know, that's what will really convince everybody that it's Okay. The, the, the time has actually come, and we actually have have a new beyond standard model phenomenon. Yeah, it doesn't sound to me like as a small victory to say that nobody's talking about standard model physics anymore. I mean, that sounds like a big victory. To me. It's a, I do I do accept. Thank you. <laughs> that is a step <laughs> forward. However, for a long ever since the first event came along, people recognized the possibility that if it's real, then it it sort of does suggest beyond standard model. Okay. Uh, so that so that's, that's sort of like two years the, since the first event was published, and people did acknowledge it at that level of well, it looks unlikely for the standard model, and so really it's just pushing that over the edge from unlikely to you know can't be done. So these particles would be appearing all over the world, I assume. But why is the Antarctic the best place to look for them? The Antarctic is a great environment for radio frequency observations, especially if you're looking for transients, because you know there's very little uh, human activity 
uh, over the whole continent. And so um, it makes it a very quiet radio environment. And then from a meteorological standpoint, <laughs> actually, it's, a, it's the unique place on the planet where you can put a balloon up in the atmosphere and it will just sort of, what they, what they say is that it orbits around the continent uh, at about a month at a time. And so these ultra long duration balloons that NASA developed and also the European Space Agency has, has developed this technology as well, it's really a, a new capability just within the last, I guess, you know, 15 to 20 years where you can put a big payload very high in the atmosphere and, and just have it up there for, you know, a month, two months. So that's fantastic. It, I mean, the winds just cause it to slowly circulate and it never, it never leaves the, the continent. And eventually, if something goes wrong, uh, you know, a parachute, it, 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 it starts plummeting to Earth, but it throws up a parachute, which sort of brings it down more or less gently to the surface of the ice. And then you can send a recovery team uh, the next summer season and you get your instrument back. So. Well, that really is a wonderful experiment. Why does this have to be outside the standard model? Uh, the path length through the Earth is much too long uh, for a particle of this energy to get all the way through any, any standard model particle. Um, and so the thing to appreciate is that uh, we're all raised and we understand that neutrinos, for example, are standard model particles, highly penetrating standard model particle, uh, a trillion passing through our fingernails every second from the sun, and they pass through the earth without any trouble, and they can go through a, a light year of lead, you know, before interacting. The thing to understand is those are low, relatively low energy neutrinos, MeV, or sort of nuclear energy neutrinos. And as you, as you increase the energy, um, the neutrino becomes more interacting, more likely to interact with all the stuff around. And so once you get to these extreme energies that correspond to the actual cosmic ray showers seen by Anita, then assuming that's uh, calculated correctly, but they have done their calibration, um, assuming that's calculated correctly, then the neutrino can really only get through about 300 kilometers of Earth. You, you work way backwards along the direction that this shower was coming from, and you, you see you're, you're looking down below the horizon by 27 degrees or 35 degrees below the horizon. And so there's a lot of Earth, um, ice and Earth and mantle even of the Earth that you're going through. It's 5,700 or 7,200 kilometers. Um, so that's many interaction lengths, which means you greatly suppress the flux that eventually emerges. We do this, we address this question with simulations because there are some subtleties with uh, the idea that the neutrino, uh, even if it interacts, it might still get reborn in a sense from decay of the subsequent tau. And so we, we, address, we try to address it with simulations. One of the trajectories is less than one in a million that get through and make a tau shower. And then the other trajectory is less than one in 10 million. So it's okay. extreme, extremely unlikely. Just like I say, just the first thing you think is, wow, that's a crazy trajectory for a high energy particle in the standard model. So there's, no, there's nothing that gets through this stuff easier than a neutrino in the standard model. So if a, if a neutrino can't do it, then no particle can. So what is it? Well, what you need, and this is the, this is the argument made in our paper, the key missing ingredient is some beyond standard model particle that you create in cosmic ray interactions on the far side of the Earth. And specifically, actually, high energy neutrino interactions. So in a way, the neutrino comes into the story at least twice. So neutrinos on the far side of the Earth, uh, they come through, even though they're very high energy, they still get through the atmosphere with no problem. 
they penetrate maybe 100 kilometers or 300 kilometers into the earth and then they interact. Every once in a while, that interaction produces this uh, necessary uh, beyond standard model particle, which is heavy enough and has sufficiently uh, weak interactions, that is weaker than the neutrino, that it can make it through the earth. And so it propagates through the earth, uh, more or less unmolested, and then decays at some point. And when it decays, it needs to decay into a tau or a tau neutrino. We think it decays into a tau. Seems like the most likely possibility. And then the tau can decay to make a neutrino, which can get you the last, let's say, 500 to 1,000 kilometers uh, to the surface of the earth. And the final ingredient, that tau neutrino then needs to interact, make a tau that very close to the surface of the earth, such that a tau comes flying out of the surface of the Earth and decays to make this big cosmic ray shower that's observed by Anita. Arguing from the basis of the observations, one needs a beyond standard model particle to get you through the Earth, like 90% of the way through, before you make that tower town neutrino that can then emerge from the surface of the Earth as a high energy cosmic ray shower. Yeah, and this has been predicted by theorists in the past. Yeah, yeah. We found uh, our earliest paper uh, was from a 2014 publication date. It was on the archive in 2013, talking about how in particular supersymmetric models, you have a, a relatively long-lived supersymmetric partner particle that is charged and heavy and therefore highly penetrating. And you could make them in cosmic ray showers and they would fly through the earth. Right. Yeah. Cool. It's pretty remarkable. I was, I always like to give a shout out to the theorists when they, when they do this, you know, rabbit out of a hat trick, basically, yeah. uh, and provide a, a, or theoretically anticipate something really bizarre. Uh, <laughs> and maybe we don't, but then maybe it turns actually, you know, correspond to reality. It's really incredible. You say rabbit out of a hat, but it's not like they were just sitting there thinking up magical ideas and hoping that one of them came true. As Richard Feynman said, is imagination in a straitjacket, right? You, have, you, you can have whatever idea you want, okay? And then, uh, to, before you can publish it or claim it as, as a new and interesting idea, you only have to check it against all, all observations yeah. you know, that have ever been made and all theories that we have that have currently been tested. And then, then you can publish, yeah. What, what's the kind of implication, though, of it being outside the standard model? What's the implication for the standard model? What's the implication for particle physics in the future? Well, uh, let me say first that it is well known that the standard model is not a complete theory of the fundamental interactions of nature. It cannot explain neutrino oscillations. It doesn't create dark matter, which we really need to, you know, glue our galaxies together and, and produce the... Um, power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background that we see. Um, and it doesn't uh, really account for dark energy, although that is maybe even a, a far, far, farther future challenge than, than the dark matter. Um, so, it's, so it's not a complete description of nature. And we have been, you know, sort of feeling our way as a community, like the astrophysicists and the physicists, trying to attack different angles in hopes of uh, sort of cracking it open and getting a lead uh, for the next key next steps. And one of the things that's happened, you, as, as you and, uh, and many of your listeners are aware, is that uh, physicists global around the globe banded together to build the Large Hadron Collider and to run it, you know, and operate it and analyze those data, build the detectors. <laughs> I mean, this is an immense effort. I guess I've seen it estimated at 10 billion 
you know, euros uh, to date uh, or for the, for, the, for the nominal lifetime of the experiment. So it's an immense effort. And of course, we had a tremendous success there detecting the Higgs and now measuring its properties and, and, under, and understanding really, you know, sort of cleaning up that final corner of the standard model. That had, was, that had been left until then undiscovered. But I really think we would not have put this much energy into the LHC or even necessarily built it and operated it as we have if we didn't think that this was a good way to push beyond the standard model. The goal really to understand the standard model and to study the Higgs, but to push beyond and discover new particles is driven in large part by these supersymmetric theories of the fundamental interactions, which uh, solve a couple of problems, you know, theoretical problems or, uh, if you will, aesthetic problems uh, with the standard model by po postulating a, a sort of doubling of the number of particles that exist. Every particle has a supersymmetric partner particle. And the masses, the characteristic masses for many of these particles, if not all, are around one TeV, which is, you know, well within the range where LHC can be producing them in proton-proton collisions. and the, among those supersymmetric partner particles is a least mass supersymmetric partner, which is a natural candidate for the dark matter. I mean, one needs to really obviously study <laughs> the particle and its inner and, and, and other supersymmetric partner particles interactions in detail to demonstrate that, but it's, it, it's, it's out there and it ought to be produced in the Big Bang and it ought to live for a very long time. So it's, and, and with very weak interactions. So it's a good dark matter candidate and also um, this sort of next to least supersymmetric partner particle, which, as I said, in some versions of supersymmetry, is actually relatively long-lived. I mean, in our paper, we talk about a 10 nanosecond lifetime, which doesn't sound like a lot, but actually, for a very massive particle, it's, it's extraordinarily long. So we need something. I think, I think what we say is that the properties of this particle are anticipated by theoretical models of the supersymmetric partner particles. Yeah. Okay. And one of the active efforts among both uh, ATLAS and CMS detector collaborations is to search for long-lived massive charged particles. So why haven't they found them? If you're wondering if they've ruled out, if LAC has ruled out supersymmetry, no. They've not ruled out supersymmetry. They're, they've constrained the, the sort of minimum masses and maximum cross-sections for these supersymmetric interactions. And so any model that you want to develop to explain the um, Anita events within the context of supersymmetry has to live with those constraints. Um, and it, I should say we have not done the simulations to show that that's possible. Um, but I think that's interesting work that lies ahead of us um, to actually check. But yeah, LHC just needs to continue going, collecting more data, right? And the expectation is if, if, if supersymmetry is really true, then LHC is actually the facility that you need to ultimately to discover these particles and to study them. I think most of us, when we think of particle physics, probably think of CERN and the Large Hadron Collider. But I wondered what other facilities are available. Here's Val Gibson again. Currently on the books um, are, um, there's the future of the LHC. So the LHC is going up to high luminosity, which means higher rate, more and more, more, more events. Um, and then CERN is looking towards the next collider, um, circular collider, which is called the FCC. 
Um, and that comes in three types, if you like. You can collide protons, you can apply electrons on positrons and electrons on protons. So you've got lots of options there. Uh, there's also a proposal in China to build an E plus E minus circular collider and really study the Higgs boson in detail. Uh, there's also a linear collider that's proposed in Japan that will uh, study the Higgs boson in detail. And then there's the neutrino program. Um, and so there's many activities going on around the world. Particle physics is an international endeavour. And the Institute of High Energy Physics, IHEP, is the research base for particle physics in China. Yiming Li is a physicist at the centre of their research and development. Uh, I got my doctor degree in uh, Oxford at UK and I worked in a French lab before joining IHEP actually one year ago. Um, and I'm interested in using the data from high energy physics colliders to study how the very fundamental particles uh, form together the stable hadrons, that's the matter around us, and how their decay indicates uh, the new physics mechanisms beyond the energy scale that we cannot yet directly reach. And in order to achieve that, we want to reconstruct their decay product very precisely. That's why we also want to build good detectors. And I'm also part of the IHEP efforts to build such kind of high-precision silicon detectors. Working at the forefront of particle physics research is surely interesting enough, but for Yuming Li, the future is particularly exciting. As a particle physicist, I think everyone's ambition would be to make great physics discoveries. So far, I have been using the data mainly from European experiments, and I think it would be my dream to make such great physics discovery in an experiment which I helped design, whose physics motivation I involved in planning, and whose detector I helped building. And that's exactly what we are doing now in China in IHEP. Yiming Li was talking to Physics World for a commissioned careers video for IHEP, and the team also caught up with Yifang Wang, the director of the Institute of High Energy Physics. I have, uh, would like to be a centre and the leader of uh, high energy physics, but in addition, we are also uh, building and operating a lot of uh, large science facilities. We have several uh, sites uh, in addition to our main campus in Beijing, Yichuanlu. Uh, one is in Dongguan, which uh, is our spallation uh, uh, neutron source uh, facility uh, SIT. We have two neutrino experiments in the south of China, in Guangdong. One is Daibei React Neutrino Experiment, and uh, the other one is the German uh, Underground uh, Neutrino Observatory called the Junot. We have also uh, a high-altitude uh, cosmic ray observatory in Tibet and also in Sichuan. Uh, we are actually building the world's largest detector for uh, react neutrinos. Uh, it is actually technologically uh, most advanced uh, detector and also with great scientific uh, potential. The uh, world's best light source, which is going to be built in Huairo, has the, the best specifications or the, the, the most advanced specifications of the light source. We are also thinking about 
to build the world's largest uh, electron positron glider. It's called the CPC. CPC is meant to study the properties of the Higgs boson. Uh, we know that Higgs boson was discovered in the year of 2012 at CERN, and we know that it has a, a property very similar, to, very similar to what the standard model predicted. But in fact, uh, the LHC and the, even its upgrade, uh, high Lumi LHC, is not going to uh, test the detailed uh, agreement between the standard model and the, the, the real data up to the precision of, uh, uh, say, hoped for 1%. Uh, the high Lumi LHC can only uh, reach a level of uh, roughly 10%. So we hope to improve this previous precision by almost a factor of 10. And this will give us uh, a possibility to probe new physics because Higgs is the, the most strange particles in this standard model. And it is actually a window towards, uh, towards the future. It sounds promising, but where are we at the moment? We are working on the design. Uh, we almost finished the uh, conceptual design report. And, uh, and we started also uh, a, a number of uh, uh, R&D projects for some of the key components of the actuator. So uh, things now actually uh, moving on uh, uh, in a very good shape. And we hope that in the next three, five years, we're able to get uh, a positive signal for the construction. With particle physicists around the world having access to these huge, impressive and expensive experiments, I was reminded of another gargantuan engineering and scientific effort. We return to the Gravity Fields Festival and that conversation with Val Gibson. We're coming up to 50 years of since Apollo 11. Such an enormous expense and, and, and effort from so many different scientists, 400,000 we are yeah. led to believe, yeah. um, and engineers. And do, do you feel like understanding dark energy would be more important than the moon landings? Or where do you think it fits in the, in the history of science, if it happens? Yes, it's a good question. Um, clearly, landing on the moon was incredibly important, not only scientifically, but politically. And I think the global science that we do these days, bringing together people from all over the world, is scientifically very, very interesting, but also, once again, politically very interesting, um, because it makes people work together for the, in the sake of science to deliver results without conflict and I think that is a great thing actually about the science that we do big collaborations we have to work together to solve problems mm. and is that it, it, how does it work in terms of sharing open data and things does it when, when the LHC are doing their experiments that, d does that data just get shared within the different experiments at the LHC at CERN or does, does it come wider than that and then Will places like China and Japan, will they share their data with the rest of the world? The answer is we share to a certain point and we share within our own projects. So we have the big collaborations, the big experiments and at the Large Hadron Collider at the moment we have Atlas, CMS, LHCB and ALICE experiments. So the data that they take 
they share within their institutes and universities around the world to analyse, uh, but they don't share it with each other. And that gives a competition, a little bit of a competition to the, the, the measurements because you, competition actually drives um, people to actually publish things as quickly as they can. Richard de Grise is a professor of astrophysics who's worked in the US, Europe, China and beyond. He's now based in Sydney. Uh, I'm currently an associate dean at Macquarie University in Sydney and uh, um, my, my remit is um, international relations, global engagement. That includes anything from undergraduate recruitment uh, all the way up to the exchange of senior academics and everything in between. I'm in Beijing at the moment. Yeah, we arrived yesterday morning. And so we're with a large delegation, including our vice chancellor, two executive deans, a whole bunch of associate deans, a whole, whole lot of uh, heads of departments in China. We're visiting various institutions um, in Beijing, Changchun, which is in the northeast, uh, Weihai, which is in Shandong, south of Beijing, and, and Shanghai for the next week and a half. I think international collaborations are essential to make progress in science. Um, it's It's not just... It's not the international factor so much, but it's collaboration uh, because, you know, a, a number of scientists together can do more than the individual individuals combined, uh, right? It's one plus one is more than, makes more than two. That, that's the idea here. Uh, international collaborations often provide access to resources, be that manpower, be that equipment, be that facilities, whatever, that you may not necessarily have in a single country. And so you can often achieve more and have access to uh, more expensive resources, if you like, uh, by by pooling forces. And so you, you just mentioned um, uh, the uh, Large Hadron Collider and uh, some of the other international facilities. In my field, I think one of, one of the next big things will be the next generation of extremely large telescopes, right? There's three of them currently in the planning. Um, they may all go ahead. They may not. The funding is still an issue, and there are some political issues on Hawaii, particularly for the 30-meter uh, telescope. But I think in, in uh, at least uh, observational, optical, and infrared astrophysics, that's going to be the next big thing in our field. You've worked in a number of different countries around the world. Do you find that politics helps or gets in the way of science? I, I guess that politics always affects what you do, at least to some extent. Uh, it has affected me in only very minor ways because, you know, astrophysics is not a political science. Uh, also, over the course of my career, of course, I've, I've become more and more and more senior. Um, and it didn't really affect me when I was a postdoc in the United States or a graduate student in, in the Netherlands, right? Um, perhaps it did affect me a little bit more in terms of where the resources would come from or what kind of funding I could get when I was a staff member in the UK. And in China... Um, yeah, I think it affected me similarly as in the UK, or as as it would affect me currently in Australia. Um, there is always a a combination of bottom up uh, uh, efforts that that are driven by the scientists, and then some national priorities that are set by uh, by politicians. And I think that's not so different in China compared to uh, the UK or Australia, for that matter. Hmm. But China's got this what looks like a different thing to me, where it's it's stating that it wants to be a scientific powerhouse. There are people with a scientific background in the political positions in China. Yes, I think that's, that's very positive, actually, because they understand what's needed to do cutting-edge science. So, OK, in, in terms of uh, the Chinese funding landscape, um, the, the main funder of science in the physical sciences, the natural sciences, is the National Natural, sorry, the natural National Science Foundation of China, NSFC, which 
operates pretty much like most of the Western science councils that provide funding. You apply for funding, it goes to a panel, uh, and the panel decides based mostly on merit. Not Perhaps not entirely, but mostly on merit. Uh, so I've always found that getting funding from the NSFC was as fair as, as it could get, more or less, in, in China, and not too different from my earlier experiences in the UK, uh, that, where I also got funding from, uh, at the time, P-Park or STFC, right? Um, at higher levels in China, if you want to get the big money, the national key research and development projects, um, such things like that, um, first of all, you need to apply for, for those in Chinese, and you need to defend them in person. That's where a likability factor comes in to some extent. And sometimes the calls for topics or subjects that would be funded are driven by lobbying that happened in the year prior to the release of the call. That's that's not the way I would like to see it, clearly. But if I were based in the UK or in Europe, I would be really annoyed and worried. Uh, I'm based in a non-EU country, and so Brexit will probably not affect my... Uh, my science directly. I continue to collaborate with, with colleagues in the EU and in uh, the UK separately. Um, I don't really depend on getting EU funding that includes the UK. So for me, Brexit, it's annoying um, for a number of different and also personal reasons. But you asked me about uh, uh, how politics affects uh, the science. And it's not necessarily national politics that affects the science, but it's the politics within the community that uh, sometimes drive things in directions that may not be the best for science as a whole, but that kind of uh, result in a compromise for everyone involved. You spent eight and a half years in China. You've lived in the US and Europe. You're now based in Sydney. From that global perspective, where do you see physics going over the next 30 years? Projects become bigger and bigger and more and more expensive. And that means that you have to collaborate more and more uh, in larger teams and also in international teams. And I think that tendency will continue. There will, still, there will still be smaller groups of people working together on smaller questions, but the big questions require a lot of funding, a lot of government funding as well, uh, and the efforts of uh, hundreds if not more people, right? So that's where I see things are, things are going. Um, we, we talked about the next generation of particle collider already, which may or may not be built in China, the next generation of extremely large telescope. Uh, there are three of them in various stages of planning and construction. Uh, they are multinational projects which are uh, supported by enormous teams of scientists and engineers hailing from all kinds of different countries. And I think that's that's the way it's going. That also means that if you want to have a share of the time, be that beam time or observing time, you get a very small fraction of it. That's also why you need to collaborate with more people so you get more time. So if you, if there was one thing that you could change to make the future better, what would it be? Well, actually, uh, no, that would not be anything related to facilities but it would be related to the movements of uh, of my colleagues because at the moment there is a clear bias still in the world or a difference between those from rich developed countries and those from not so rich and not so developed countries who are doing fantastic science but see all kinds of barriers on their ways to uh, to go to meetings to collaborate uh, to access the resources that they need to become even better. There is talent everywhere, and I've seen it in many many of the uh, the poorer countries. I, I was in Armenia, for instance, just a few weeks ago, and uh, lecturing at a summer school. The students there from the region, they were fantastic, they were brilliant, and they were all looking for ways to contribute to society. But because of their passports, they, they were limited in what they could do. And so 
if I could change anything, uh, improving mobility opportunities for young people, particularly in the sciences, uh, that would be something I would like to do. I'm giving you the, a, a key to the future now. There's a <laughs> Physics World magazine, the front cover, it has a headline. What headline do you want to see on the front cover? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, solved with an exclamation mark. We don't know what dark matter is. We don't know what dark energy is. We don't know how the four forces in physics interact with each other. And uh, so I think we need a combination of uh, very smart and clever um, theorists, uh, astrophysicists and particle physicists to make uh, to make a dent in, into that question. So I look forward to receiving the next issue. <laughs> At a time where many of our news channels and to some extent our politicians seem focused on the negative news around the world and the differences between us, once again, I'm heartened to learn of the efforts of the physics community, leaving all that aside to pursue their scientific goals. Particle physics seeks the answers to the big questions in the imperceptibly small. Getting to those answers requires collaboration across disciplines, across nations, across borders, open to all and any gender and ethnicity. It's a message I hear time and again from physicists everywhere. We're 30 years on from the first edition of Physics World magazine. Particle physics shows no sign of decaying. Sorry. Next month, we'll continue this mini-series to celebrate Physics World's birthday by looking at gravitational wave research, 12 months on from that groundbreaking announcement from LIGO. We'll also be hearing about a collaboration between gravitational wave researchers at the University of Birmingham and artist Leo Trimble, creating a musical instrument out of gravitational wave science. They've connected a synthesizer to a Michelson interferometer and use direct control voltage information to make the music. They start with the sound from the interferometer, they use the machine they've created to create resonated notes, and finally the sound goes through a cloud texture which samples the sound over itself. Physics World, this is for you. World.